This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Difficult times and the crystal of liberation. This week I speak with Jack Kornfield, the author of The Wise Heart, and one of the key teachers to introduce Buddhist mindfulness practice to the West. Jack shares with us reflections on four decades of personal meditation practice and how this has informed how he works with students. We also explore how Buddhist insights can help us during challenging times, whether or not it is possible to be liberated even in the midst of experiencing our neurosis, and what he means by quote-unquote the crystal of liberation. You've mentioned to me, Jack, that you're working on a new book, Buddha's Instruction for Hard Times. And I think most people would say uh, we're living, obviously, in a time that is marked by lots of aspects of it being quite a challenging time for people with the economic downturn and so many factors. What, pray tell, is Buddha's instruction for hard times? Well, the first instruction from the Buddha um, is to say that hard times are not a mistake. You haven't done something wrong to have hard times. The first noble truth of the Buddha, uh, the noble truth of Dukkha, says that life is woven with praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain and fame and disrepute for all of us. Um, And those constantly change so that spiritual life is not about avoiding loss and blame and and, uh, difficulty, but taking those difficulties that come to us um, and using them to awaken a wise and free and compassionate heart no matter what. And often it's in the very difficulties that the, that the greatest freedom comes to us. So the Buddhist instruction, in another way, is to center yourself, to ground yourself, take a breath. Um, and when you feel uh, steady, uh, to turn toward your difficulties rather than away from them. And to, to bow to them and say, all right, this is the measure of difficulties I've been granted or given at this point as many other people have in this world, um, what in, in my own Buddha nature, in the great heart of wisdom and compassion that can see these difficulties, um, what is the way I should respond? And so it really brings you, the difficulties bring you back to your spiritual center. That's part of, that's a little piece of it anyway. I can imagine though someone listening who, let's say, just had their health insurance taken away or was laid off from their job or uh, and thinking, well, you know, okay, so so this is, I'm supposed to look at this and say this is just part of life. It, it certainly feels terrible. It feels absolutely terrible. Well, of course, when things are hard, you'll be, you'll feel terrible and you'll be fearful and confused and anxious and hurt and lost. These are natural. They're also a part of what you have to bow to. Um, 
and they're the same thing that Nelson Mandela had to suffer in prison, um, or that um, various other exemplars that we might say of human courage um, have had to suffer. Um, and we're survivors. We know how to do this. We know how to take what's difficult and walk through it a step at a time and a day at a time, not by having the answer or knowing what will happen. How do I live without health insurance? How do I live when I've lost my home? The first thing is to just stop and feel yourself on the earth and remember who you are because you're not limited to the things you have or the kind of insurance you have. Your spirit is inviolable and it cannot be touched by by these external circumstances. And it's time to turn back toward that. As someone said, the question is not the future of humanity or even our own personal future, not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. That there's some place in us that is still and wakeful and compassionate no matter what happens. And it's time to tune into that. Um, There are many more things to say about the Buddha's instructions for hard times. Um, The first is to acknowledge that hard times are really hard and not to take away the grief and fear and confusion that comes with a cancer diagnosis or the loss of a job or the addiction of someone we love or the loss of our home and to really honor that we have to walk through that fire and that in some way when we come to hard times the point is not that we go and look for some refuge outside of those hard times that will take us away from them and, you know, um, somehow make it all better, but to look for that within us that can endure the difficulty and pass faithfully or courageously through it um, so that that which is indestructible, as one of my favorite teacher says, that which is indestructible can be found within you. And it may mean that there's a lot of grief that we have to pass through, um, the ocean of tears, as the Buddha described it. Um, And it may mean that we need all kinds of support from other people. But we also have to take the time to sit still and quiet ourselves and willingly turn to face the measure of our difficulties and bow to it as if we are the Buddha and say, yes, this is what's given to me, and yes, I can do this, because we can. And our suffering then and our difficulties becomes uh, the source of the uh, light in our heart, of our deepest compassion. In, In Tibet, in Tibetan Buddhist practice, sometimes you actually pray for suffering. It's an amazing practice. Grant me enough suffering that I might truly learn um, compassion for myself and for all beings who go through difficulty. Grant me enough suffering that I might truly learn to trust that which is in my heart of uh, an inviolable spirit that cannot be touched by this that I go through. Um, And then, of course, you need to find all the kinds of support that can help you with this. The spiritual forms of support of teachers and teachings and the uh, community support, because we're not supposed to do this alone. 
my friend Annie Lamott likes to say it this way. She says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. Um, sometimes you really need your spiritual friends and, and your colleagues. And then another part of the Buddhist teachings is not to believe all your thoughts. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts, unguarded, says the Buddha. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. And so we can see the way our mind constantly moves from the present moment, from the reality of the present, into all kinds of fantasies and memories and how it should have been and how it might be. That famous kind of line from Mark Twain where he says, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. We can take even our difficulties and elaborate and go all the way down the road till we're out on the sidewalk with a shopping cart, homeless, um, you know, and, uh, and, and helpless in some way. And to learn how to look at the thought stream itself and know, oh, this is thoughts or this is worry, and to trust the space of awareness, to bow to it and say, yes, and here we are now, to live in the reality of the present, a day at a time, and a moment at a time, with a great compassion and, and a profound trust. So there's so many parts to the teachings of um, Buddha's instructions for hard time, um, and underneath them, perhaps, is pointing to our own capacity to do this. You know how to do this. And the universe will help you. As the poet Pablo Neruda writes, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. And some way, even in devastation and great loss, as we braille our way through it, we will find our way to centeredness, to understanding, to a great peace of heart um, that is who we are, even in the midst of that, to carry our light no matter what happens. It's amazing to me, Jack, to think of a, a teaching where you pray for suffering so that your heart could open in the sense that so many of the teachings in today's American spiritual marketplace are about, you know, quick steps to happiness, only happiness, getting the kind of happiness you want. Do you know what I mean? The whole idea is, you know, yeah, they're far, all about, yeah, they're all kind of trying to console yourself and find a better way. Well, to the point where you, when you're suffering, you think there must be something wrong with me that I'm suffering because if I was following the right spiritual regimen right now, I clearly wouldn't be suffering. There's something, you know. That's right. And suffering is the first noble truth of the Buddha. This is part of human existence and it always will be. It's only the first truth. There's also the truth of liberation from suffering, that it's not until we actually face and pass through our difficulty that we can find that light in ourselves uh, that cannot be extinguished. And the Buddha said in his very last words before he died, make of yourself a light. What I, I think I'm pointing to, too, is that what I notice a lot is that when people who are spiritual practitioners go through a period of great suffering, sometimes some people can feel like they're failing in some way, you know? Yeah, you can't fail. <laughs> That's great. That's one of the beautiful things about spiritual practice. You can't fail. It's not about success or failure. We get lost. Everybody gets lost. 
And then there's a moment where you wake up and you say, really lost, wasn't I? Really anguished, wasn't I? This was so frightening. This was great fear. You're bowing to Mara and say, oh, Mara, you've shown me the worst fear now. You've shown me anguish. I've lived through anguish. And you bow and say, yes, this too. And take your seat as the Buddha in the center of the world, in the timeless reality. And it's not about failure. You know, we are, we are all um, following. There was one Zen master who said, that, strictly speaking, a Zen master's life is one continuous mistake, a Zen master Dogen, one mistake after another. It's not about failure. We, we always are making mistakes. That is to say, one circumstance to learn from after another. This is life. When you think about the times that we're in and whatever inspired you to write a book like Buddha's Instruction for Hard Times, do you feel that these times are harder than other times? Um, they're harder than some and um, not as hard as others. Um, I was sitting talking to my mom, who's in her late 80s, sitting there with my daughter, and uh, Grandma Joyce was talking to, to my daughter and describing what life was like when she grew up, and there were not very many motor vehicles. The street lamps were still gas-lit. And the ice man came around and put ice in your ice box, and there were more horses on the streets, and and the changes that she'd seen in the course of her life, and she was going through the Great Depression and the Second World War and um, other difficult times that she'd lived through. These are part of our humanity, um, and uh, they come to us. And even if it's good times, sometimes in good times it's kind of a myth. You go around and think people are doing well, but there are people who suffer from depression and stress and, and loss and divorce and cancer, even in good times. Uh, difficulties will come to us. Um, and we are, we, are, we are creatures of spirit that know how to do difficulties when we touch our um, Buddha nature, when we can rest in the, the timeless place in us. Um, that is always present. I mean, we know this. You know, if you look in the mirror, you notice that you're older, right? I mean, almost everybody does. But the interesting thing is that you don't feel older. And that's because it's just the body that is growing older. And somehow the consciousness that witnesses the body growing older, knows that this is not all of who I am. This isn't who I really am. And this spirit, my teacher Ajahn Chah called it the one who knows, is outside of time. And we have this timeless uh, freedom to see the dance of life um, within us when we take the time to ground and center and to quiet the mind and open the heart, then we take even the difficulties and say, yes, these two are part of the journey. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned that we know this in our quote-unquote Buddha nature. Mm -hmm. so, so what do you mean by that? Everyone, regardless of whether or not they're a Buddhist, has something that's called Buddha nature? What's that? Yes. Um, every child that's born is born with innocence and purity, um, and if you look at little infants, you can see it. Of course, they have their needs and their, you know, their fusses and their desires, but also this tremendous purity and innocence. Um, and with a connectedness with the world, um, 
with, in the Buddhist tradition, what's called the great heart of compassion. We are wired to know our connection with all things. We are wired to, um, to know um, how to survive and live in this world. Neuro, modern neuroscience um, talks about mirror neurons where the, the cells in our, in our nervous system, in our distributed nervous system throughout our body, actually resonate with the cells of the nervous systems of people around us, and now it can be measured. Um, in the same way, not just on a neuro and neuroscience and biological basis, there is in the one who knows in us um, a longing for ease, freedom, uh, compassion for ourselves and others that is innate in us. And this is what I'm calling Buddha nature. So our, our natural heart, if you will. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. There's an old joke that I heard a long time ago. It's not even a joke. It's a true story. Uh, Pope John Twenty-Third, who made all those changes um, during the Second Vatican Council in the Catholic Church and so forth, and struggled a lot, as, as I think any leader does in this world. And he said, he said sometimes um, I would be lying in bed and half asleep dreaming about all the problems that I face and think, I really want to go and talk to the Pope about this. And then I'd wake up and remember, oh, I am the Pope. Mm -hmm. And there's some way in which we might say, oh, I really want to talk to the Dalai Lama about this or to whoever it is that we admire. And then in some way, uh, when we quiet ourselves, if we take the time to whether it's to meditate or to pray or to sit in the garden for a time and just take our seat there and listen to the wind and look at what wants to grow itself out of the earth again, um, to quiet the mind, open the heart, we touch the, that which is timeless in ourselves and remember that we are what we seek. So you mentioned... Uh sitting in a garden and potentially meditating. And I know, Jack, what you've been meditating now for, is it four decades? Yeah, something like that. That's a long time. Yeah, a long time. And um, I'm curious, uh, when you look at this four decades of meditation practice, what has surprised you about what you've discovered? And if anything, have you been disappointed at all? as well by what you've discovered about meditation. Anything either surprise or disappointment? Oh, I haven't been disappointed at all. I mean, one, I could say I was disappointed when I discovered that, you know, my personality wasn't going to go away. You know, people think, and as I did, oh, I'm going to get a new, much better, more enlightened personality. But the personality isn't what gets enlightened. <laughs> you know, you get a body when you're incarnate, and you get a certain personality. Um, and um, that's how it is. Um, enlightenment isn't about that. Uh, it's um, not about that kind of, you know, uh, ideas of of perfection. I'm not disappointed at all. It's been absolutely wonderful. And um, what I've learned, um, which has taken me a long time, I'm a kind of a slow learner perhaps, um, has led me to the place where when I meditate, I don't really seek anything. I sit. I open myself. If I've been really busy and running around and so forth, then there might be tass, tension or stress, and I let that release. That's just sort of the body, physical. Um, 
and I rest in a kind of open awareness. Um, maybe sometimes uh, I might deliberately shift to loving kindness and compassion, but often it's there in that open awareness. Um, and things are the way they are, and I'm at, you know, at ease in the midst of them. Um, so I don't really try and do anything, and my life is my life. And it's not about changing it. It's really about finding the, the, a great space of presence and awareness that can see the dance of life um, and participate in it, um, both participate fully and yet somehow not be so caught in it. And I'm not anymore. We'll see. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen when I die. I'll be interested to see. Maybe I'll be kicking and screaming, saying, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, I don't, I don't know. But I, I feel like I really learned how to rest in the way things are. And it's wonderful. And it took a long time. There was a lot of meditation where I released tensions and where I dealt with, you know, the trauma that I carry from my childhood and various kinds of anger and fear and things came out. And that was also natural. Um, but it wasn't it, it wasn't the the culmination of it. That's just a kind of natural purification that happens as you meditate. You come back to center and so forth. But it's not leading you to or me to a state or something that you hold on to. It's actually leading to openness and and presence. So I'm um, just backtracking for a second when you say that the personality hasn't changed. What what do you mean by your personality? Well, I mean you know. Uh, if I were to take the Myers-Briggs Union personality yeah. test, um, I'm extroverted. I have some introverted side, but I'm extroverted and I'm intuitive more than, uh, you know, and sensation type living in my body and so forth is less, is less dominant. And I have certain patterns. I'm really speedy, you know, and quick both to see things and, and also maybe quick to analyze and want to do stuff and things like that. It's very different than other people that I'm around and, you know, and people in my family. There's somebody who's very different personality, who's way slower than I am, and, um, who's much more um, connected with their body and the garden and the earth and so forth. Um, and those things, you know, that's just how I am. Um, and uh, that's part of the personality. Or if there are all these different kind of ways of looking at personality, and, you know, there's the Enneagram, and maybe I'm a three on the Enneagram, a doer, and so part of my personality is to keep doing things. And now I do things as, it's lighter now. It's there, um, but there's more sense of space and being behind it, um, of just presence. I don't know if that helps. Yeah, it helps. I think part of what I'm curious about is what, Parts of our lives transform through meditation, and especially, you know, talking to someone who's dedicated so much of their life to both meditating and teaching meditation. And are there parts of our lives that meditation doesn't really touch? I mean, if I if I want to improve my relationships, is meditating enough, or do I also need to? No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, you just asked three good questions, and I'll yeah. ask you that. You've been meditating for twenty years, too, or thirty years. You know that. Um, of course, you're talking to the listeners right now. Of course not. Awareness is enough. Attention, um, compassion, and wisdom uh, are enough. But the formal meditation is only one part of training. Basically, what you, what I've learned over the years is that um, attention and understanding 
in one dimension of life doesn't necessarily translate into another. So that you can have Olympic athletes who know their body exquisitely and down to the, you know, down to every part and every cell, um, who are still emotional idiots. You know, or you can have university professors who are Nobel laureates and incredibly brilliant and can't find their body. Mm-hmm. You know, or you can have somebody who has a lot of emotional understanding but has all kinds of unconscious and, and, and delusional thoughts about things. So it turns out that in the Buddhist tradition, it's talked about as the foundations of mindfulness, that you actually have to develop the capacity for presence and then bring it to the body and the physical world. You have to bring it to feelings. You have to bring it to mind and all its stories and the way the mind works. You have to bring attention and beliefs. You have to bring attention to the world of relationship, right speech, right action, right livelihood, all those connections, um, and to the, to the underlying spiritual principles of it all, attention to the Dharma. And when you do that as a mandala, then wisdom starts to permeate all the parts of your life. But it turns out you actually have to deliberately pay attention to it. You can't sit and meditate and have some fabulous deep insight about love and boundless compassion and selflessness and then go and expect your relationship is going to be really cool because what happens is you get in a relationship and it's a different dimension of your being and sometimes some of that carries over but half the time you get triggered and you're back in you know feeling like you're you're in your trauma and you're little again and mm-hmm. and you're confused um, and then you actually have to deliberately say this is practice as well and then it turns out that all those areas can become places of freedom and awakening Mm-hmm. Do do you think that? Uh, well, I guess let me ask this differently. How do you recommend to meditators that they work on these other areas of their life? I mean, do you recommend that they try to bring this meditative awareness of my relationship is now a form of meditation, or you know, hey, I'm going to directly go into couples therapy, or I mean. Everything's different, whether it's business. How am I going to bring meditation to my business life? Well, I'll get a coach. Tammy, yeah. I am an all-of-the-above kind of person. What you're talking about is really skillful means. Um, and we're both wise enough now, culturally, and we have resources, so that if you're having a lot of trouble with your relationship, as I have had in the past, um, get help. There's great books. Sounds True has all kinds of good sets of CDs and things from some of the best teachers and practices on relationships. There's workshops, there's therapy. You know, learn to make your own patterns and fears and confusions conscious so that you can release them and have a a freer and wiser heart in relationship. The same in business, of course. The areas that are difficult or where you can feel confused, um, get skillful help. It's not all that complicated. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that the whole point is, you know, to go to the gym and work out and have good couples therapy and then go to money workshops, you know, and and then work on your personality and try and make yourself a perfect person. It's not about perfecting yourself. It's about finding in your meditation and in your spiritual life a place of centeredness and freedom and wakefulness and then noticing that there are certain areas of the life where that doesn't translate yet so well because of past trauma, because there's confusion and a kind of veil, and saying, all right, what will it take to bring the same wisdom and compassion and love there, too? Mm -hmm. It's not about an ideal. You know, this beautiful 
kind of passage. If you can sit quietly after difficult news, if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if you can see your neighbors travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy, if you can happily eat whatever is on your plate, if you can love those around you unconditionally and fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill, if you can always find contentment just where you are, you're probably a dog. (laughs) We have all these ideals about, oh, my God, I'm going to be this, you know, great enlightened person. Um, And those are just ideas. Um, You are yourself, and the point is to be yourself and to find a freedom in being yourself and find a freedom to love in each of these areas, which which wants to come out of you. Uh, and is possible for you, as you are, as Tammy is, and as Jack is, and as each person is. Mm-hmm. It's not being somebody else. It's not by imitation. And it doesn't mean that you still don't have stuff. Um, I'm here at Spirit Rock as we do this uh, podcast. Um, and uh, there's a wonderful young Tibetan Lama who's teaching here this week, along with some of our teachers, named Minja Rinpoche, who wrote a, a, a book on uh, joy, a very happy, joyful lama. And the first part of his book, he talks about being recognized as a, as a living Buddha and a reincarnate lama as a young man, um, and then having years of anxiety attacks. And he said it was really kind of difficult, because people would look at him as if he's the living Buddha, which he was supposed to be, and at the same time he would be terrified. And how he practiced with it and how he learned to both first accept it and then transform it. Um, so the point isn't that we're supposed to, um, you know, make ourselves somehow different, but actually to be who we are, to hold who we are with great compassion and the spacious wisdom and say, yes, this too, but this isn't, this isn't the end of the story. The freedom of our life is the end of the story. So you're saying the freedom to be who you are, even with your quote-unquote stuff, yeah, which is different than whatever your personality is. I mean, our personality yeah, is, yeah. is this unique enneagram type. I mean, our unique yeah, expression. I get that, but that, the but stuff also is this other thing. Your neurosis, yeah. if you will. I mean, yeah. Ramdas talks about how he'd become the connoisseur of his neurosis. There's a way in which you know that that's not who you really are, and so you're less caught in it, and it's less powerful. And there it is. So liberation exists with stuff in the midst. It certainly does. Okay. Now, uh, I'm curious, in looking at this four decades of practice and teaching, how your approach to working with meditation students has changed, potentially. Are you oh, teaching meditation in, yeah, in a different way? Than in a number of ways. When we first started teaching retreats, Almost 40 years ago, 35 years ago, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, colleagues and friends, um, we taught people very much the way we had learned in monasteries of Thailand and Burma and India um, with a great deal of effort and a kind of striving because that's how we were taught. And it turned out it didn't work very well in this culture. People just used um, the meditation then to add to the judgment that they already had, and it enhanced the tendency toward unworthiness and self-criticism. So one of the biggest changes that we all made was to surround the practice of meditation 
with loving kindness and compassion, that that's the ground within which we pay attention. Because real attention and, and liberating awareness is that which doesn't judge. And it's not just a cerebral not judging, but it's really the openness of the heart that says, oh, yes, this too. This too, it's like Buddha bowing even to Mara and saying, I see you, Mara. I see all these, all these things. And if you look in the Buddhist text, it turns out that after the Buddha's enlightenment, when Mara, who's, you know, the archetypal symbol of difficulty and evil in, in the Hindu and Buddhist mythology, Mara comes with his armies of temptation and aggression and doubt on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, and the Buddha, um, becomes liberated from Mara. Uh, Mara returns in the Buddhist text 40 or 50 times after that. Mm-hmm. And the Buddha says, oh, Mara, is that you again? I see you. And there's a kind of wisdom. So instead of judgment, there's tremendous compassion. That's the ground of meditation. And then you can have real awareness. Now, that's one big change. Um, another is from the striving much more to the sense of... Um, presence itself. The game isn't to make the effort to have something happen, but rather the effort to be present, to relax into the reality of the present, to rest in the space of awareness and know what happens. Um, we also have developed uh, a, lot, a, a deep respect for the need for healing that people bring to meditation. It used to be that people thought at all these kinds of meditation centers around America, Tibetan and Zen and Hindu and so forth, you meditate that would take care of all your problems. That's kind of like what you were asking about before. Yeah. Um, but it turns out that often when we sit um, in the stillness of an openness of attention, the, the traumas we carry, which almost everyone carries, the, the deep disappointments, the losses, the, uh, which are all held in the body, as well as in the heart, they start to reveal themselves. They start mm-hmm. to release. And instead of saying, oh, that's not spiritual, let me focus on the light, or let me focus on my mantra, or on the Buddha, or whatever, these are the practice itself. And so what we've learned is to include all the difficulties and traumas and energies of life uh, that are our own personal history as the ground for compassion as the ground for um, liberating attention to know, to know them. Um, and that's a big shift. It's a, it brings a wholeness into meditation rather than seeking some particular state. There are states, and they can be helpful and useful to navigate between the samadhi states and jhana states and deep states of emptiness and insight and so forth, um, but they have to be connected in the long run with the personal, the universal and the personal, personal have to be connected. We need to rest in our Buddha nature or remember our Buddha nature, and we also have to remember our social security number and our, you know, area code and all of those, our zip code. Um, and the two uh, dimensions, this paradox of life, of the personal and the universal, the two dimensions need to be tended to and held together somehow in the heart. Um, for us to be free. Mm-hmm. Now, I know someone who works here at Sounds True who just came back from doing a, a month-long retreat mm. uh, at Spirit Rock, and I asked him, I said, what practice were you doing? Because, you know, I was curious. And uh, what he reported that was that he was actually spending quite a bit of time 
doing the practice of inquiry. And yeah. I thought, huh, I, I had no idea that uh, Jack taught inquiry to students in retreat. So I was very curious about that, and I think our listeners might be curious as well. There are, in the Buddhist tradition, 84,000 skillful means. And in the forest monastery where I lived, we had many practices. Sometimes there were practices of contemplation that you might call inquiry. Who am I was a contemplation. It was one of the first, it, it was the first meditation given to new monks. When you shave your head and enter into the deep forest grove with the, um, the ritual of ordination with a circle of elders around you, the first meditation they give you is the meditation in which you reflect on the parts of your body, on your hair and skin and nails and teeth and heart and lungs and, and bones and blood and muscle and ask, is this who I am? Who am I really? It's the first contemplation and the first deep inquiry. Um, and it's given to you in that way because the, the monastic life and the Buddhist traditions, at the root of it, all of the teachings are to liberate you from the small sense of self, from the, what's called the body of fear, the sense of separation that's untrue, um, back to your true nature. Um, and so, yes, we work with samadhi practices and concentration practices, and we work with heart practices of compassion and loving kindness, and we work with insight practices, and we work with contemplations and inquiry and various other disciplines, and all these are a part, rich part of the Buddhist tradition. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you mentioned inquiring into this, you know, am I the blood and bones? Who am I really? Mm -hmm. Or who am I? Who am I yeah. really? And, you know, uh, who knows what you might really feel on your deathbed? You know, w would it be this state of peace, or will it be some kind of kicking and screaming that none of us really know till we're actually there? But I'm, I'm curious, in that inquiry, for yourself, what you've discovered about what your sense of who you are is outside of being alive in a physical body, beyond death. I'm just sitting quietly and smiling. Um, I feel so deeply happy and so deeply free. And it doesn't mean that I can't get caught that, you know, somebody around me or someone in my family can't say something then where I get all that stuff gets triggered. But it has nothing to do with who I really am and with, with uh, true nature. And knowing this is uh, um, resting in um, this great timeless presence, which is what I am, what we all are. Um, that's the game. So this uh, conversation is officially called Insights at the Edge. That's the name of this series. And part of what's interesting to me is to find out what the edge is for you, both in your professional life, meaning what you're working on now creatively, that's really your edge of contribution, uh, and then also your personal edge, what, what's happening in your personal life that's an edge. And so I'd love for you to talk about those two things, Jack, if you well, want. Well, I, I want to stay with the other thing okay, for sure. a moment first. There's a beautiful passage in the Dhammapada where the Buddhist says, live in joy and love even among those who hate. Live in joy and peace even among the troubled. Um, 
there are troubles in the world. There's hatred, there's sickness, there's difficulty. And there is also an undying spirit, an undying inviolable consciousness that is in each of us, that is who we are. And um, it's everything and it's nothing. And to speak about liberation, um, one of the reasons people get confused about freedom and enlightenment and liberation is that awakened consciousness has different facets or different dimensions. A bit like a crystal. So that if you hold this luminous crystal up to the light and, and turn it, you'll, it will um, take the, 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 the beam of white light and refract it into the many colors of the spectrum. In the crystal of the awakened consciousness, one facet is love. And when you rest in um, presence and pure awareness, at times everything is love because you're connected with everything. And that's simply what, what existence is, like gravity only more so. If you turn the crystal one more facet, everything is emptiness. And you feel its transparency and its emptiness and everything that arises um, arises and passes away like a dream. Every moment, every day is new, and then it vanishes. And where is that day? Where is that moment? If you turn the crystal another facet, everything becomes vast silence. This enormous silence that surrounds all our activity and our words and movement that is always here. If you turn it a, another facet, it becomes tremendous joy. And bliss, ananda is the word in Sanskrit. And everything is joy. And another facet, and it's clarity. The awakened heart and mind is simply clarity itself, knowing. Um, and you turn it another facet, and it's absolute peace. What happens in spiritual paths often is that a master or a tradition will have an experience of awakening, will embody that awakening in one facet or another, in peace or love or, or emptiness or joy. And then people get confused and they think that's what the awakened heart is. It's really love, you know, and it's all about love. Or it's really about emptiness, letting go and transparency, um, like a star at dawn and a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a dream. You know, or some other people think that it's really about fullness and presence, being completely present for every moment. Um, and those are, the, those are the dimensions of awakened consciousness. Um, and we discover that to be true when we rest in pure awareness, love, when we, when we step out of the small sense of self. Um, this is revealed to us. And to know this sort of helps with the confusion of these different spiritual paths. They're not leading to different places, but to these fundamental, luminous and liberated aspects of our own true nature of, of consciousness itself. Mm -hmm. And we know this. It's not like it's far away and it's not in the Himalayas and it's not just some great guru or lama or swami or mama or something. We actually have tastes of this. We know this in ourselves. It's not far away. It's here.
So now you want to ask about new things. I forget what it was about. What's my cutting edge? And creativity. Well, well, first Um, of all, thanks for that, Jack. It was beautiful. You're welcome. You asked a... um, you asked a serious question. I did, and as I hear you uh, talking about the diamond, is the implication that that we are that diamond? Of course, <laughs> yes, but it's not personal. It's not you, Tammy, or me, mm-hmm. Jack. Um, it is. It is who we really are. Mm-hmm. It is our collective true nature. I mean, it's this mysterious thing. Nobody knows how they were born, where we come from. You know, how did you get into this funny-looking body that has a hole at one end into which you stuff dead plants and animals regularly and grind them up with the bones that hang down and glug them down through the tube, you know, and ambulate by falling one direction and catching yourself bipedally and then fall the other direction and catch yourself? It's bizarre how we got in here and this world. No one knows how this world came into being. It is a creation of consciousness itself. It's extraordinary, this mystery. And the point isn't, you know, to be trying to perfect this body or personality in some way, but to step back and see and know in the heart this mystery and rest in the reality of the mystery. And then, of course, you play the game of life because we get to be incarnated. We are the mystery in incarnating itself. And it's beautiful when you remember and it's painful and it's awful and it's unbearable beauty and, you know, unfathomable pain, the ocean of tears and, uh, you know, galaxy of bliss. Um, and I don't say that lightly, um, but it's what we the have. Ocean, galaxy, you can't really say those kinds of things lightly. I mean, they're, they're huge, you know. Well, yeah, or the ocean. The Buddha said, which do you think is more, my friends, the, the, the water in the four great oceans or the tears you have shed on these long way of of taking birth again and again, whatever, you know, you believe cosmologically. Um, we do know the tears of the world. We each carry a certain measure of those tears in our heart. And at the same time, he says, live in joy even among the afflicted. Live in joy in luminosity and peace even among the troubles of the world. Mm-hmm. Remember who you are. And all the different practices, you know, to take the time to meditate, to quiet the mind, to open the heart, to take the time in nature, to read your favorite poem, to listen to music that touches and inspires your heart, to, you know, to watch a film of courage or that makes you laugh and gives you perspective, um, to be with teachers that remind you, or to teach somebody else so that you're reminding them from your deep understanding. They're all skillful means. And then you see the areas of your life where you're still really foolish. You know, the first thing you discover in life is you're a fool. Someone said the last thing you discover is you're the same fool. Mm. (laughs) Sometimes you think you understand and then you kind of wake up and say, oh yeah, you know, this too, this too. And from that place you see the places where you're caught or you suffer or you make suffering, which we all have, or the great difficulties that come. And you turn toward them and bow and say, yes, this too has come to me. Now let me use this to awaken true compassion and patience and understanding and freedom to be found right here. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. 
Well, thank you. Thanks, Jack, for the conversation. You're welcome, Tammy. This program has been brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Please visit us at SoundsTrue.com and experience our award-winning audio programs for yourself. Programs that embrace the world's major spiritual traditions, as well as the arts and humanities, embodied by the leading authors, teachers, and visionary artists of our time. With every title, we strive to preserve the essential living wisdom of the author, artist, or spiritual teacher. Not only will you receive information, but you will receive the essential quality of a wisdom transmission between a teacher and a student. Many voices, one journey. Soundstrue.com.